Hello, hello. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Savvy Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. My special guest tonight is Fado Kaboob. He's an associate professor of economics at Denison University, and he's the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. He has also held research affiliations with the Levi Economics Institute, the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and the Economic Research Forum. He's an expert on modern monetary theory, the Green New Deal, and the Job Guarantee. Welcome, Fado. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for coming on. So um, a while back, it's actually been a couple of months ago, Steve Grumbine came on and he was talking about MMT and he was talking about it in reference to the debt ceiling because that's what we were discussing at that point in time. But since then, newer people have subscribed to my show. So can you explain to everyone, what is modern monetary theory? Very good question. So uh, MMT is essentially saying that at the federal level, the U.S. federal government has something that we call monetary sovereignty meaning it has the power of the purse. It has the capacity to spend money into existence. Unlike states and municipalities, unlike the rest of us, we're users of the currency, not issuers of the currency. So as such, the issuer of the currency, of the, currency the federal government, has a spending capacity that is much, much larger than its tax revenues and what markets would allow it to borrow. So it could spend way beyond what we would normally consider, you know, fiscally responsible in the mainstream sense of the term. So the question becomes from an MMT perspective, what is the limit? Because MMT doesn't say it's infinite spending. Of course, that will cause inflation. So the real limit, what constrains federal spending is the risk of inflation. So MMTers, we become obsessed with the risk of inflation, trying to estimate what are the actual sources of inflation that will tell us how far we can go with our spending on health and education and climate change and social programs. So the risk of inflation is determined by a couple of things. One is the availability of real resources, productive capacity, that is materials, technology, skilled people, and so on. The good news about that risk of inflation is that these resources are producible. We can train more people, we can build more hospitals, and create millions of jobs. As we do that, we minimize the risk of inflation from shortages of productive capacity. And that, by the way, includes supply chains and logistics and disruptions to the supply chains, which is what we're experiencing right now. So that risk of inflation, we know how to manage it with strategic investments in the economy. The second source of inflation is a little bit tricky, and I think your, your listeners will be very interested in, in this second piece. And that is what I call the abusive price setting behavior of key players in the economy. That is to say, you have corporations and strategic areas and key areas of the economy who can raise prices simply because they can. Here we're talking about health insurance companies, we're talking about uh, your telecom companies, very little competition and abusive price setting behavior that drives the risk of inflation higher. And here's the kicker. That risk of inflation can't be eliminated by spending less and saying we can't afford uh, to you know, reduce child poverty. We can't afford to spend more money on the unemployed, on the poor, on climate change. It's 
It's got nothing to do with it. The only way to eliminate that inflation risk coming from abusive market power is by taxing and regulating their abusive market power out of existence by making those markets more competitive, more democratic. And if we do these two things, spend strategically to build productive capacities in areas where we have shortages and tax and regulate their abusive market power, then we're able actually to minimize the inflation risk while creating millions of jobs and expanding the economy in areas where we need more accessibility, like housing, uh, like uh, healthcare, like telecommunication, infrastructure, all of these things um, are within reach. So that's really the, the MMT approach is, is focusing on the potential that the economy has, the real resources, as opposed to saying, oh, we don't have the tax revenues, so we're not going to afford it. That's kind of the, how I introduce MMT to the you know, first-time listeners usually. I can't hear you. You're on mute. Oh, I muted myself. Um, in reference to inflation, this is a hot topic right now, especially since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What could the Biden administration do to to fix this? Because the last time I, t I talked about MMT, some people said that, well, this is just a theory. It doesn't actually work in practice. And that's some of the criticism that that I've heard about MMT. But what could Joe Biden do, like, let's say tomorrow to fix inflation? And I'm glad you're asking me what could Joe Biden do about it, because usually the, the, the questions that we get is, well, we have inflation. Who's going to deal with inflation? It's the Federal Reserve Bank, because that's their mandate. And mainstream economics and even mainstream politics tells us that central banks are the agencies that can manage inflation. And, and Jerome Powell and, and the Fed told us already that this year they're planning to increase interest rates at least three times in an effort to reduce inflation. And my argument, the MMT argument, is that the Federal Reserve Bank and central banks in general are extremely ineffective at actually targeting inflation and reducing inflation risks. The actual jurisdiction in which inflation pressure points materialize are way outside the jurisdiction of the Fed. And that is to say, in the case of the U.S., to be more specific, pre-pandemic, and then I'll tell you about the, the COVID situation in, in a second. Pre-pandemic, we have four key areas of inflation pressure points. And everybody knows those because we pay for it and we, we, we see the bills. Number one is housing and the real estate sector. Number two, it's healthcare. Number three, it's education. And number four is energy and transportation. Of course, there are other areas, inflation pressure points uh, related to this, childcare for parents and so on. But these are the main drivers of inflation pre-pandemic. And when you look at why those areas experience higher inflation rates than the rest of the economy, it's because of two things. Lack of productive capacity. Sometimes it's artificially uh, created shortages, especially in the healthcare industry, to make those services exclusive and as a result more expensive. So it's lack of productive capacity and number two, abusive market power of key players in those in those industries. So that type of inflation, there's nothing the Fed can do to tame sources of inflation related to the real estate market or education or healthcare. These are in the jurisdiction of Congress. Why? Because Congress can spend strategically to increase 
the productive capacity of affordable housing, universal health care, free college education for public universities, um, uh, rent controls in, in key cities, uh, tenants' bill of rights, right, to make those markets more competitive and to make them more accessible for, for the public. And these are the kinds of things that MMT says you need to do to, meet, to deal with the risk of inflation. Spend strategically to expand the availability of those resources and tax and regulate abusive market power out of existence. So this is what the Biden administration should have done on day one, even before the pandemic, before we, we started with this uh, pandemic-induced inflation. And this is what will eventually help us tame these sources of inflation. Of course, with the COVID situation, on top of the pre-existing sources of inflation that I described, we have a global pandemic that disrupted production and shipping and supply chains across the world, and as a result, created even more shortages and added to the inflation pressure points. And at the same time, it provided the excuse for some of the abusive price setters in the U.S. economy and beyond to take advantage of this pandemic disruption and the little bit of inflation that it led to to say, oh, the cost of doing business is going up. So we're going to increase our prices, not to match the cost of doing business increase, but to increase their profit margins. And they've been bragging about it in the last few uh, few months, uh, talking to shareholders and, and the media saying, well, the pricing environment is favorable. So we're going to abuse our position and raise prices. So that kind of inflation that we're experiencing right now, it's not going to be eliminated by having Congress not spend more on poor children to reduce poverty, uh, childhood poverty in, in the U.S. And it's not going to go away by spending less on uh, providing uh, free college education or building infrastructure for the U.S. economy. So it's very important for us to tackle this debate head on, focusing on the actual sources. Otherwise, they're going to use this pandemic, the inflation that we're experiencing right now, to build a narrative around it for the next several decades to say the inflation of the pandemic was caused by too much spending on poor children, too much spending on the unemployed, too much spending, government spending on subsidizing the unemployed and the poor and all of that and, and infrastructure and climate change and all that, which is the narrative they're, they're beginning to build already. They're saying we can't afford more because it's going to cause inflation because all the money the federal government spent in the last uh, couple of years. And it's dangerous because these are not the sources of inflation. The sources of inflation, as I, fed, as I said, are shortages, abusive market power, and, and none of the strategies that we're looking at today by essentially handing the keys of the economy to the Federal Reserve Bank is actually not going to eliminate inflation. As a matter of fact, the Fed raising interest rates is likely to fuel inflation, right? Not because it's raising the cost of doing business and it's helping uh, with, with more speculative behavior in financial markets. And it's got nothing to do with global supply chains, nothing to, nothing to do with abusive market power. Mm. So I have to ask this question, where does the money come from? Because when they say they don't have money to spend more on child education or child poverty, where does the $768 billion come from that they just use to fund the military industrial complex? Right. Or where did the two, $2 trillion for the COVID Relief Act come from? And this is really the interesting observation because everybody was watching what the federal government is going to do during the beginning of the pandemic. And 
when it happened in April of uh, 2020, the, the CARES Act, it passed Congress without anybody in the mainstream media or politics or economics asking the question, where did the $2 trillion come from? Who did we tax or who did we borrow from? It was money spent into existence. That's what we call the power of the purse of the sovereign federal government of the United States. As a matter of fact, if you remember those moments, there wasn't a single person in Congress who voted against it. Uh, there was a couple of people missing in the Senate because they had COVID or they were quarantined or something. So 100%, no debate about it. It's a national priority. We're going to spend money into existence. The same way they vote for the military budget. They consider it a national priority. They don't ask where did the money come from? Who are we going to tax? Is it going to be inflationary? They don't even send it to the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, that usually tells them, no, don't do it. It's going to be inflationary. So this is what I'm talking about. The 535 people we elect into the U.S. federal government, their responsibility is to use the power of the purse responsibly. And by responsibly, I mean spending strategically in key areas of the economy where we have neglect, where we have shortages, including poverty. Poverty is a result of neglect. But most importantly, taxing and regulating the abusive power of the uh, key players in the economy who dominate the pharmaceuticals industry, the telecom industry, and, and so on. And here's the, here's the problem. Are we talking about a democracy, a government of the people, by the people, for the people? Or are we talking about a government of the super PACs, for the super PACs, by the super PACs? Which becomes the question of investing strategically in taxing and regulating the abusive market power that fuels inflation means the 535 people we elect, they need to be not corrupt, which means they need to have the uh, courage to do the right thing, which is tax and regulate the super PACs and the corporations that fund their campaigns. And, and this, to me, becomes not simply a question of inflation or of economic issues. This is a fundamental question about democracy. And we can't separate these. This, this is why we have to have this public debate about inflation and make it political because it's not purely an economic concept. It's fundamentally in the hands of lawmakers. It's not in the hands of the Federal Reserve Bank, the so-called independent central bank. Mm. I want to get your take about this because you brought up the housing issue. So I, there's something I want to show you really quick. Just going to share my screen. Sure. So I mentioned this last night, but it actually applies to our discussion tonight as well. So this came from Nico House and he tweeted this and he said the average price of a home and he means like 15 years ago was eighty five thousand dollars. Now the average price of a home is three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. Home prices have increased by almost one thousand percent in my mother's lifetime. And she's only fifty two. And he shows a chart here. That says 1975, the median sale price was 38,100, 1980, 63,700, 1985, 82,800, and 1990, 123,900. And then he goes on to say, what I'm saying is this is not normal at all. You shouldn't have to pick between having a home for your family and living your life to the fullest. And up until recently in the U.S., that wasn't the case for the middle class. 
but there isn't a middle class anymore, really. I want to get your opinion about the housing situation because I'm a part of the millennial group and my students were like Gen Z. And a lot of us, we just haven't really been at a place in our life where financially we could buy a house unless we had help from our parents or unless it was passed down like by generation. What do you feel like when we talk about the housing issue? What do you feel is the cause of this? Like why, why are houses so much more expensive now and why is it so difficult for us to get them? Well, again, it has, this has to do with what I described earlier, the abusive market power and the speculative behavior that key players uh, engage in, in in the economy. That includes not only real estate uh, companies, but mortgage companies, financial institutions and speculators in the financial system, as as we all learned from the 2008 financial crisis, is fueled by speculative behavior, uh, by Ponzi schemes and so on. So this, uh, the, the reference here to the last several decades in terms of housing uh, market uh, growth. It also has to do with um, gentrification, right? This is the real estate strategy to boost home prices and, and rental prices in key pockets of, uh, of cities and, uh, and, and communities. Uh, it's, it's, it's brutal on both ends. It's brutal against communities who are excluded from the system is brutal against communities who are gentrified via these uh, speculative investments. Uh, and, and it's actually getting worse than that because this is a slice of the pie uh, of the holistic attack on the middle class and the working class that's been going on since the early 1970s. And, and it's actually interesting that you bring this up here today because what I described earlier as this hijacking of the narrative about this inflation that's going to be used against us for the next several decades. This is precisely what happened in the 1970s. So let me just describe that uh, particular uh, narrative that was built from the 70s to this day, and you'll probably see the, the housing situation kind of wrapped in it. What happened in the 70s? We had huge inflation, and the dominant narrative that Reagan and Thatcher and the neoliberals used since then was, oh, this big inflation is due to the welfare state. Decades worth of spending on the poor and, and students and subsidizing homeowners and things like that. So we need to cut public spending to fight inflation. When the actual source of inflation of the 1970s had nothing to do with the working class, had nothing to do with government subsidies to the poor, had nothing to do with labor unions. What caused the inflation of the 70s? A conflict in the Middle East between the Arabs and the Israelis whereby the Arabs and OPEC in particular decided, you know what, we have this control over oil reserves. Most of the oil supply comes from our oil wells. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to slow down the oil production. Demand for oil is going to be the same. We cut the supply and oil prices are going to go through the roof. And we use that as a strategic economic tool to negotiate with the West to reduce their support to Israel and find a peaceful resolution to the conflict. Nothing to do with the U.S. consumers or working class or labor unions. So there's nothing that the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank could have done in the 1970s or 80s to eliminate the source of inflation, which was a conflict in the Middle East. So oil prices go up, the cost of shipping, heating and cooling, industrial chemicals and petrochemicals, everything we use from plastics to hair products to textiles, everything went up in cost. So we had inflation. So what did the U.S. do? The conservatives hijacked the narrative of that inflation and said, we told you 
it's all the big government spending that caused this inflation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut spending to fight inflation. And that was the Reagan era, privatize all the government-owned entities and so on. And number two, we're going to hand the keys of the economy to the independent central bank, the Federal Reserve Bank. And we're going to tell Mr. Volcker, the, the head of the, the Fed at the time, to raise interest rates as high as necessary to break the back of inflation. And as a matter of fact, raising interest rates did nothing to solve the conflict in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, it made inflation worse. What did eliminate inflation at the end was two things. One was Jimmy Carter deregulating the natural gas industry to find a substitute for imported oil. He even put a solar panel on the White House to reduce the uh, electricity consumption and energy consumption related to uh, imported oil. But that was kind of one segment of the solution. The ultimate solution was signing a peace accord in the Middle East, which reduced oil prices and completely eliminated the source of inflation. Had nothing to do with Volcker, had nothing to do with the neoliberal narrative about what caused inflation. And yet they dominated the narrative and convinced everybody, the general public, politicians, who to this day repeat the same story. We heard Joe Manchin say it. He said, I know about the inflation of the 70s. It was too much government spending. So we need to do a, a what did he call it, a strategic pause on spending and wait for the Federal Reserve Bank to handle the inflation. And so if we don't push back against this narrative right now in the middle of this pandemic inflation and point to the sources and point to the actual solutions, they're going to keep using the same narrative against the working class, against the middle class for decades to come. So that attack on the middle class, on the working class that started in the 70s and 80s, this is where we started destroying labor unions by government mandate almost. Uh, and that's when we started seeing a huge split between the gains in productivity and who gains from those uh, increases in productivity. It used to be the working class, right? Their wages grow uh, systematically with gains in productivity. And as soon as we started going after the working class, going after labor unions, productivity keeps going up and wages pretty much stay flat. So the working class of this country, which is the engine of economic growth, 70% of economic growth in the US is consumer spending. So how did U.S. consumers continue to fuel economic growth since the 1970s and 80s to this day at the tune of 70% of GDP when their incomes have been essentially flat, accounting for inflation since the 1970s? Well, the answer is very simple, access to credit. This is where Wall Street comes in and said, we'll give you money to spend to keep fueling the economy. We'll give you car loans. We'll give you mortgage loans. We'll give you student loans. We'll, we'll invent all kinds of loans, credit cards. And, and now we got to a point today where we're going even further because consumer debt is already unsustainable in the private sector. So we're getting to seniors who already own their homes, right? But have been squeezed financially and can't afford to live their senior years in, in dignity because they don't have decent pensions, decent retirements, or social security benefits because they don't have even money to maintain the homes that they, that they own, that they paid for, because they don't have money for uh, health care. They don't have money to support their children and grandchildren with student debt or anything like that. 
So what are the seniors being told to do thanks to financial innovation from Wall Street? They're giving up their homes via reverse mortgages. If you stay up late at night and watch your local channels, there's lots of commercials about reverse mortgages. What's a reverse mortgage? Just like the name indicates, it's a mortgage, but it's reversed. Instead of you paying the bank to buy a house for the next 30 years, it's reversed. I already own the house. I'm a senior citizen. I need money. So I sign a reverse mortgage with the bank whereby they give me a monthly stipend. And when I pass away, they take the house. It's theirs. So reverse mortgage, if I sign a reverse mortgage with the bank, they give me even a down payment, right? To fix the house or to pay for, uh, you know, grandkids' college education or to pay for, you know, uh, uh, healthcare debt or whatever it is. They give you a down payment and then they give you a monthly mortgage payment. It's a reverse mortgage payment with the idea that when the senior, the grandparents pass away, the bank owns the house. So the inheritance of wealth that used to build wealth for working class and middle class people is no longer an option once you sign those agreements. So, and we're, we're not doing anything to stop this, right? We're just fueling more of, of the same. It's not only seniors, but even middle-aged people, people my age, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s. I have little kids. I worry about their future. Uh, and a lot of people at my age and my income level and my situation worry about little kids. What happens if I, you know, get into a car accident and I'm dead, you know, the next week? Who's going to take care of my kids financially? Who's going to pay for their college education? So what do I do? I go to a financial institution and buy a life insurance policy, right? Life insurance policy, I pay a monthly premium. And then when the accident happens and my kids need the money, the bank will give them, I don't know, a million dollars, let's say, to pay for their college and, and so on. So that sounds good. My kids are little, but by the time my kids are 17 or 18 and they're starting college, and they all start college more or less around the same time, I look at the bills and say, this is impossible. How am I going to pay for college? Right? $200,000, $300,000 for two or three kids for those four years. But then the calculus changes. Now I'm not worried about the little kids. Now I just want to push them through the four years of college without debt. And after that, they're adults. They're on their own. I don't need to worry about them financially. So beyond that point, I don't need the life insurance policy. right? So here's what my financial institution will offer me if I'm at that point. They say, well, here's what we can do. You give us your life insurance policy. We're going to buy it from you. And here's how the transaction is going to go. We're going to give you, say, $200,000 upfront for a million-dollar life insurance. We'll give you $200,000 upfront to pay for your kid's education, which is great. And then we, the bank, will continue making the monthly payment on your life insurance on your behalf. You don't have to worry about it. And when you die, we get the million dollars. So this is convenient for me, right? But this is, again, sucking more resources from the working class, from the middle class, squeezing every little penny from the working class and middle class and not allowing any buildup of wealth for working class families, middle class families that would normally move on to the next generation in the family as the grandparents home or the life insurance policy of one of the parents and so on. All of those resources are being squeezed so that we 
continue to finance the economic growth of the U.S. economy without government support for college education, without affordable housing, without affordable transportation, without any of those basic necessities that the wealthiest country on the history of the universe can certainly afford. And yet we're squeezing everything to the top 1%. So th this, this whole thing started in the 70s and 80s and is continuing to this day. And if we don't push back with the coherent narrative that identifies where the sources of the problem are and how we can tackle them without bankrupting the country, without causing inflation, without turning into a communist country or, or whatever you know the, the critics usually uh, say when we talk about the Green New Deal and things like that, then, then they're going to continue squeezing the, the working class, the middle class, the way they've been doing it for, since, since the 70s. They give us a little bit of breathing room when there's a pandemic and the system is about to collapse when we shut down the economy. And they give us a little window of a few months. And then they said, that's it. Enough pandemic spending, enough relief for the public. Now is the time to throw people under the bus, which is what the Fed is about to do by raising interest rates and what Congress is about to do by not spending more to support the poor, the working class, people who have been stricken by the pandemic, and by not going after the abusers of the system uh, who are actually contributing to this inflation cycle that we're experiencing. So it's up to us. We either empower ourselves with, with the truth, with knowledge, with coherent visions, and push back and call their bluff, or we just take it on the chin and stay quiet. Wow. Um, I want to get your opinion about the 08 housing crisis, <clears throat> because this was a moment like I'll, I'll never forget 08. I'm sorry. It just I know I bring it up a lot on the show, but I remember seeing like seniors lose their homes, people who had worked all their lives and all because of the housing crash. And so many people have come forward and say, well, Obama had to bail out the banks instead of bailing out the American people. I want to get your opinion about that. Do you feel there was something else that could have been done so that people kept their homes? Um, Sabrina, I'm so glad you asked this question. <laughs> and it's not an old issue and it shouldn't, you know, be shoved under the rug because it's still with us to this day. Uh, and here I'd like to invite you and, and your listeners to take a look at the docu-series produced by uh, a couple of my friends. It's called The Con. And it's specifically about what happened to people in 2008. And it's available on, on YouTube. And, and you can listen to the follow-up podcast. It's called The New Untouchables that Real Progressives produced about this particular issue. And the whole documentary series starts with the story of Addie Polk, uh, an elderly lady in Akron, Ohio, who was uh, forced out of her home. Uh, and, and she was in the news uh, at the time. She was about to be forced out of her home. She was conned. She owned her home. And she committed suicide when the sheriff was knocking on, on her door. It was all over the news at, at the time. So the documentary starts with her story and does the detective work of finding the evidence of how they conned her out of her home. And then they talk to all the investigators in, in Akron and, and beyond all over the state of Ohio. And what we discover is that there's, this was a systematic, this was not just a few bad apples here and there, a systematic attempt to, to steal people's homes and people's wealth and destroy their lives. And this is not 
my colleagues or friends doing the detective work. This is the FBI. We're talking about state attorney generals, not just in Ohio, but across the country, who started digging into these cases and found evidence. And then naturally, when you find that there's uh, a nationwide conspiracy to steal homes and destroy people's livelihoods, as a state attorney general, it's not your jurisdiction to go at the national level beyond your borders. So what do you do? You go to the FBI. What do you do? You go to the Department of Justice to investigate, to have a federal investigation into who were the key institutions at the national level who are actually benefiting from this and fueling this, uh, this, uh, this theft. And that's where the federal government intervened not to do the right thing, but to protect the interest of Wall Street. And it was both um, President Bush during the last few months of his administration and, of course, President Obama during his administration and Attorney General Eric Holder telling the public there is no crime. It was just, you know, bad things happened here and there, a few little, you know, conspiracies at the local level, but there is no implication that involves in a criminal way the big investment banks on Wall Street. They didn't even want to look because if they looked, they would have found massive crimes and that would have cleansed the system of corruption. And this is why I always say we're not going to have our Green New Deal unless we have a clean New Deal, just like in the 1930s. The, green, the New Deal of the 1930s wouldn't have happened without something that happened in Congress, which is called the PICORA investigations, which cleansed the system of the oligarchs who were controlling and opposing the New Deal investments on the public. So we, we're going to have to deal with the corruption in the system. And if we have people at the highest level in the Department of Justice, in the White House, who play the role of gatekeepers for the super PACs that support their campaigns and their friends' campaigns, then we're, we're going to see another 2008. We're going to see more of the abuse over and over again until we have a true democracy. Again, democracy meaning a government of the people, by the people, for the people, not a government of the super PACs for the gatekeepers and their lobbyists and their, uh, you know, the elected officials that represent and defend their interests. Mm. Thank you so much for the super chat to fund the empire. The top 1% is the employer class. They make all the important decisions in their board meetings about what to do with profits. Why is it a surprise when they decide to give it to themselves? Thank you so much uh, for that. I have to ask about student loans. Got to yeah. go there. Sure. <laughs> um, in reference to student loans, like I feel that student loan debt needs to be canceled at this point. Now, some people say that would be terrible for the economy. I feel like it would help the economy because then instead of paying all that money to student loan companies, we would be able to put that money back into the economy. I want to get your take on that about student loan debt. And what does MMT say about that? Well, I'm so glad you called it canceling the debt because I hear some some friends who say debt forgiveness for students. Forgiveness for what? You know, you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> if anything, we should thank students for going to get the skills and education and, and experience that will fuel our prosperity in the future. Um, uh, so two things. One is there is an important study that my colleagues at the Levy Economics Institute did um, uh, a few years ago now, maybe three years ago 
about the economic impact of canceling student debt. Um, and, and it's a net positive. It's a no-brainer. Go look at the report. It's very detailed. It, it is a no-brainer. And that's the study that everybody's citing in the last uh, couple of years, kind of during their, um, the Bernie campaign and, and other campaigns to cancel student debt. So that's point number one. It's a net benefit. Number two, since we talked about what happened in the 70s and the attack of, on the working class and the middle class, this is part of the game, right? This is part of the attack. So what did we do? We uh, reduced the amount of support that we provide to families, to students. That's point number one. And number two, at the state level, we reduced the amount of funding that states give to community colleges, technical schools, and public universities. So now those universities at the state level, community colleges and, and state universities, have less funding from the state. They have to cover the cost of doing business. So how do they do it? They raise tuition. And when they raise tuition, they're sending a signal to private for-profit colleges and private universities to raise their tuition too, because there's always that price gap between the, the free college education or public education and the private education. So that's point number one. We cut contributions. It leads to higher prices. Number two, remember I talked about the sources of inflation in the U.S. economy the last several decades? I mentioned higher education as one of them, but the other three actually fuel the inflation in higher education. Cost of energy, heating and cooling universities, that's number one. Cost of healthcare for faculty and staff on college campuses. It's a huge financial burden on all employers, by the way, and the private sector, including universities. So when the cost of healthcare keeps inflating at 10, 15, 20% every year, you're going to have to pay for it somehow, and universities end up raising tuition. Um, so, and cost of real estate and housing for student housing. And now you have even more competition. And because the price is rising, parents are saying, well, what are we paying for? These old buildings, this old gym, and all the colleges are competing and trying to attract uh, students by offering them a little bit of scholarship but they're offering them the nicest gym. They offer them the nicest swimming pool, a lazy river, and say, by the way, don't worry about the very expensive tuition. We have pre-signed agreements with all of these financial institutions. They'll give you student loans to pay for the gym and to pay for all of this. So one thing leads to another. Four decades later, we have a massive student debt crisis. So it's a bunch of nonsense that started with the attack on the working class, on the middle class, on education. And now this is, this is not, we're not at a point where we can tinker around the edges and fix this. We need radical transformative solutions. And, and I mean radical in the literal sense of the term. Radical meaning going to the roots of the problem, right? So radical solutions as opposed to incremental small uh, solutions. And, and I, I always remember Martin Luther King in the context of the civil rights movement when he says, uh, he said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism. He was a radical. He was looking for the radical transformative solutions. And the same way for our crises today on the student debt crisis, on climate change, on inequality, on poverty, and all of these things, we need radical transformative solutions 
because we've had these structural problems for decades, long overdue change is, is needed right now. Uh, and when politicians say, well, we'll cancel maybe $10,000, but do nothing about the other sources that fuel the student debt, then five years later, we're gonna be back in the same situation with even bigger student debt. So we need to cancel the debt, number one, to repair the damage that we've done to the system, to the working class and middle class, and then fix the sources that actually produced this abuse by fully funding public education and investing in producing the skills that will literally save our lives and fuel our economy in the future. Mm. One of the things I, I want you to uh, discuss with people is mint the coin. So this was rather new to me. Um, but Steve Grumbine had, had explained when he was on here last time, he said, well, Joe Biden could just mint the coin. Could you explain that to everyone as well? Yes. So the, uh, the concept of minting the coin is almost 10 years old now or even more. Uh, the, the concept emerged uh, in the MMT community about in the beginning of the 2008-2009 crisis, the debt ceiling crisis of, of the time. And the concern was that, well, the federal government, that is Congress in particular, uh, is too divided to vote on spending on the right priorities because, they're, because we know how Congress operates. Uh, and because of that, uh, some legal scholars in the MMT community started looking at alternative ways of spending that will uh, avoid the political deadlock that we have in Congress and in a situation that the one we have right now with one king in the Senate essentially saying, you will not have my vote, you will not have your infrastructure or your spending on, on social programs. And that is, we found that there is a legal mechanism whereby the Secretary of Treasury has the legal authority under the Constitution to mint a coin in any denomination. It can be a quarter, it can be a dollar, it can be a hundred dollars, it can be any denomination. And the argument was, Let's have the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, mint a $1 trillion coin, and some colleagues say make it $100 trillion, and then take that coin and deposit it in the Treasury's account at the Fed, which is where the, the U.S. Treasury has its account. And all of a sudden, this debate about the national debt, the deficit, the government not having money, will go away for a long time. And, and when, when that was, you know, circulated on social media and people started writing articles and books about it and, and so on, lots of people in the U.S. Treasury who actually work in the Treasury and know the ins and outs of, of how public finance works, they said, yeah, this is completely doable. Legal scholars at Harvard, at Cornell, at other major law schools across the country looked into it and they said, yeah, this can be done. And that immediately prompted the Obama White House, by the way, to come out and say, we will not mint the coin. That's it. End of the press conference. <laughs> um, so the, the issue of minting the coin is, is right there. But then it starts prompting your brain into thinking, well, what if they mint a $100 trillion coin? Will that cause hyperinflation tomorrow? Well, of course not, because it's just a coin sitting in a bank account at the Federal Reserve Bank. It does nothing to the economy. What it does it liberates the lawmakers, the 535 people we send to Washington, D.C., to stop thinking about where are we going to find the money? 
who are we going to tax, who are we going to borrow from, and have them focus on the right issues, which is where is the neglect in the economy? Where are the areas of the economy where we need to spend more? Building physical infrastructure, investing in, in early childhood education, and focusing on the impact of that spending on quality of life, number one, and on the risk of inflation. And all of a sudden, they focus their attention on the right things. And you start to realize that the cost of inaction, the cost of doing nothing, is actually way too expensive. And this is common sense. Everybody understands this. We're just, our thoughts are always clouded with where does the money come from? Let's eliminate that question and focus on the right things. When I say the cost of doing nothing is expensive, common sense tells us, all of us, the average Joe, including the Joe in the White House, will tell you that it's actually very expensive to neglect youth in this country. Why? Because we say we don't have money for after-school programs, for sports, for summer camps, for science, all of that. We, we don't have money. It's too expensive. But then what do we do? We don't invest in the right things. And then 15 years later, we deal with the pandemic, with the, with the pandemic and the opioid crisis. We deal with building more prisons. Uh, we deal with the health effects of neglect during early childhood and, and, and so on. We deal with all kinds of social problems that are many, many times more expensive than having done the right thing in the first place by investing in after-school programs and, and summer camps to inspire kids with music and theater and science and coding and all the stuff that benefits the entire system. So when we eliminate where is the money coming from, we focus on the right investments that are actually very impactful on every community. And we start where we've done the most neglect in the most neglected communities in every state and every corner of, of this country. And we start tackling the real problems. Um, but without that, we're always starting the debate in Congress with, tell me how you're going to pay for it. Who are you going to tax? Who are you going to borrow from? And, and that, unfortunately, that mindset weakens even some of our most progressive friends uh, on, on the left because they say, oh, we need to tax the rich and the oil companies and take their money so we can have health care and education. And what MMT says no, 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 you're not going to do that because you're shooting yourself in the foot when you link your spending on healthcare and education and social programs to their money and their permission, the oligarchs and the, and the oil and gas companies. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend on the priorities because we know how to do it, spending money into existence via the power of the purse that the federal government has. And then we're going to tax their abusive market power. We're going to tax... Wall Street, not because we need their money or their permission, but because we want to reduce inequality, because we want to reduce speculation. We're going to tax oil and gas companies because we want to decarbonize the system, not because we need their money or their permission. We're going to tax the oligarchs to eliminate their abusive influence on politics and the economy, their price-setting behavior. These are extremely important goals for our democracy, for our economy, for our social justice, but it's got nothing to do with funding our national priorities. Now, this is very different, obviously, at the state level. At the state level, you don't have these options. You have to tax this to pay for that. At the city, mm -hmm. municipal level, you have to tax, you know, you have to have a school levy to build a new gym for the school. But we're talking about the federal government, the issue or the sovereign issue of the, of the, of the currency. 
So once you decouple these things, and AOC once said it in, a, in an interview and everybody's brains exploded in DC, what do you mean decouple taxation from spending? This is what we're talking about. But when we say we want to tax the rich to pay for the Green New Deal, you've just given them more power and we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And here's why, because it's a logical flaw. If we want to have the most ambitious Green New Deal and Medicare for all, all of those things, then by definition, we want them, the rich, the oligarchs, the super you know, uh, oligarchs, to have even more wealth so we can tax a little bit of it to have our little Green New Deal. And, 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 and if, you, if you want them to be richier, richer and more powerful, more influential, they'll never let you have your Green New Deal because your Green New Deal requires taxing their abusive power out of existence and democratizing the system and having a government of the people, by the people, for the people. They'll never let you have that. So we need to start from the beginning with a coherent strategy to tackle the powers to be, to call their bluff and say, we know how to spend on the strategic needs of the country and we know how to eliminate your power and tax and regulate your power out of existence. And if the 535 people we have in Washington are not going to do it, then we unseat them one by one. But if we don't know how to pay for things and what causes inflation, and we have this vague notion of corruption and power without specifics, then we're going to keep voting over and over again for the same people brought to you by Super PACs 1, Super PAC 2, Super PAC 3, to keep the status quo and every now and then give you a little bit of incremental relief, but nothing will fundamentally change. I just heard myself say that and I remember Biden said, nothing will <laughs> fundamentally change. Uh, yeah, no pun yeah, intended, it just came to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's absolutely true. I say this often is that they'll give us enough to like get by, but they'll never give us enough to get ahead. Yes. It's a problem. Uh, thanks so much, Reprecarian, for the super chat. Thanks for inviting Pradel Kaboob uh, of Global Institute of Sustainable Prosperity and also involved with Real Progressives. Shout out to all. Thank you so much for that. And thanks so much for the super chat as well. Hashtag mint the damn coin. Thank you so much for that. Um, I have to ask, in reference to uh, MMT, is there a link between MMT and reparations? So, like, what does MMT say about reparations? Those of you who know a little bit of my work, I have uh, written quite a bit on global reparations, not reparations in the context of, uh, of the U.S. Global reparations as in reparations for colonial damage, reparations for climate damage, and so on. But it's, it's all based on how do we pay for it, right, at the global level. But in the context of the, of the U.S., and there are people in the MMT community working on, uh, in this space, the, the old debates about how are we going to afford reparations that kind of uh, divert the conversation towards, well, I wasn't you know, part of uh, slavery. It was other people. I'm a new immigrant. Why should I pay for this? And it's all linked to the dominant narrative about how we pay for things. Well, if we believe, like the mainstream does, that the federal government pays for things by taxing and borrowing from us, the public, then you immediately create that opposition. Well, why do you tax me for something that happened 200 years ago that's got nothing to do with me, right? That's not fair. So when we go into that tax this to pay for that type of conversation, you're always going to have that kind of opposition. What MMT says, 
we're decoupling these things. We're not taxing you to pay for anything that you personally have done wrong and, and you know, during uh, times of slavery. We're paying for the national priorities like health, like education, like financial reparations for descendants of, of, of slaves, because it's the right thing to do. Just like we invest in education and health in infrastructure, because it's the right thing to do. So this is a way for the nation to heal, reconcile, and move forward with actual justice, not just with empty words. So we're spending on the national priorities, just like I described earlier, using the power of the purse of the US federal government. So not at the city level, not at the state level, not on the private sector level, even though there are some reparations offer, uh, efforts that we know are happening in some small cities, very symbolic in, in my view. It's still, you know, to be applauded and all that, but reparations need to be paid at the federal level as, at a, as a systematic reparations framework. So that's the spending part. The taxing part, we're going to tax sins in the economy. We're going to tax abuse of market power. We're going to tax speculation. We're going to tax pollution. We're going to tax gambling. We tax all the things, not because we need somebody's money or somebody's permission, or not because we're going after some particular individual and saying, we need your money to pay for this reparation. So we're decoupling the two, right? So that completely avoids the singling of particular individuals or groups of individuals. Now, in the context of reparations, as, as you know, there may be a legal case to be made against particular individuals, families, wealth, you know, um, pockets of wealth that have directly benefited from slavery, right? And that wealth accumulates today because of that. There is a legal case to be made for that, in which case, yes, there, there's, there's got to be some financial contribution from particular pockets of wealth in order to um, uh, restore uh, and, and pay for some of the damage. But the federal government doesn't need anybody's money or anybody's permission to do what is right in terms of um, uh, reparations for, for slavery. And reparations is, as you know, in the, in, the, in the literature on reparations, it's three things. It's not just monetary compensation. Number one is telling the truth, right? A public apology about the damage and the pain and the hurt. That's number one. And once you acknowledge and tell the truth, well, then you have to do the right thing, which is repairing the damage. Repairing the damage is two things. One is monetary compensation, but it's not sufficient. Two, repairing the broken structures that continue to reproduce the same effects on descendants of slave. And that is racism, segregation, redlining, um, abuse and neglect that is systematic, that is deeply rooted in our system in the United States and, and, and beyond. And that is the hard work. The easy part is paying for it. The easy part is telling the truth and, and giving the apology. The hard work is actually repairing the, the broken system that continues to produce injustice. And that's, that becomes a national commitment moving forward for restorative justice. That is the, the biggest part of restorative justice is never again, right? As opposed to giving us some money and saying, well, we'll keep doing the same. Hmm. 
Well said. Uh, another question I have about MMT, because this one comes up a lot too. Why can't the government just print more money? Well, the, the concept of printing money is kind of an old kind of uh, uh, concept. I mean, today the government doesn't actually print money. When the government spends money into existence, a lot of it is digital, right? It's just the numbers in somebody's bank account go up. You don't actually see the equivalent in, in cash. So when we say spending money into existence, that's what the government does. It spends money into the economy, whether it's in print form or in digital form. Now, what I thought your question was going to be here, and I, I expected this question to pop up, so I might as well answer it uh, here. Mm -hmm. Some people will say, well, most of the money is actually not created by the government. Most of the money is created by private banks when they lend money to people. Well, yeah. the only way for private banks to legally create money is to actually have a legal document called a banking license. <laughs> Who gives them the banking license? the US federal government, which gives them a specific license to create money, not print money, create money through the process of lending. And it's a very important legal uh, and accounting mechanism that they use. It's not unregulated. So when I apply for a bank loan and the bank approves my loan, they do two things. When you sign the mortgage document, sign here, initial here, sign here, initial here, there's one important legal document which is the promissory note. It's actually called this promissory note, which literally means I promise to pay you back. That's what I sign. So they give me $200,000 to buy a house. I sign a promissory note. That promissory note becomes an asset for the bank. They own it, right? And it's legally backed by the power of the court system, the U.S. federal government system, to make sure that I pay what I promise to pay. So that's an asset. As soon as I sign the loan, two things happen. The bank has an asset of $200,000, that piece of paper that I signed, and it adds to their asset side of their accounting. And at the same time, the liability side of their books is the $200,000 that they just deposited in my bank account so I can go buy a house or a car or whatever I'm, I'm buying with the $200,000. So simultaneously, they increase their balance sheet by $200,000 on the asset side, $200,000 on the, on the liability side. And it's got nothing to do with how much they have in deposits from other customers. So they're not borrowing from other customers to give me the loan, like most people believe. And there's nothing legally stopping them from increasing my loan from $200,000 to $2 million if I had you know, the resources to borrow that much money, other than doing their due diligence, which is required by the government, and this is where the regulation comes in, to make sure that I'm good for it. Apparently, I'm only good for $200,000. I'm not good for $2 million because I'm not, I don't have that kind of income to support a loan like that. So that's how banks create money through the process of lending because they're given a legal license from the federal government. And that license it's very specific. It's a huge privilege that banks have to create money, to direct economic activity in real estate speculation versus industrial production versus healthcare versus education. It's a huge power that we're delegating to banks. And when we gave banks these banking licenses, we told them, you're allowed to do this. You're given this responsibility. You have to do your due diligence, which means you can't just lend money to your friends left and right and ruin the system. And most importantly, 
you have to serve the public purpose, what we, the United States government, consider the public purpose, building infrastructure, funding uh, economic activity that will grow our industrial and agricultural capabilities and so on. But what we've done since the beginning of the Republic is that we forgot that they actually have to serve the public purpose. We forgot that we can actually take away their banking license and give it to another institution that does it better. We forgot that we can even take it away and give it to the United States Postal Service to be the public bank to direct uh, financial resources to, to fuel you know, health, good health in, in the economy. Why? Because the system was hijacked by Wall Street to the point where we now believe that the federal government, the sovereign issue of the currency that gave that exclusive privilege to banks, we believe that we, the federal government, need to borrow from them in order to spend. We believe that we need their permission in order to spend on health or education and so on. That's how bad the, the narrative, the dominant narrative has, has gotten. And it's what we've done in the MMT community is to remind everyone of how the monetary system works. We have the sovereign federal government that can do all the things that I described earlier. We've licensed banks to do the right thing to support because we didn't want the federal government to micromanage every loan to every homeowner. That's why we have banks to do this kind of at the, at the micro level. But then we let them hijack the system and abuse it. And we forgot that we can regulate them. We forgot that we can take their license. We forgot that we can shut them down. And we fully believe, that is we, the general public, that we need their money and their permission to invest in the right thing and that we can't live without them. So that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. I have, have to ask a question about Bernie Sanders <clears throat> because he's the head of the budget committee. And in your opinion, do you feel that there's more that he could do when it comes to the budget right now? Um, not necessarily on the committee, but there's, there's more that he can do and could have done. Uh, and not just him to single him out. You know, the 535 people we have in Congress, any one of them and all of them should be saying what I just said here, which is to expose the, the power of the federal government, uh, to expose the fact that we don't need to find the money. We need to find the votes and the 535 people who we elect. And any of the chairs of the congressional committees tomorrow morning can start a PCORA-style investigation to investigate the abuse of market power, to investigate corruption in the system. Why are they not doing it? Right? So I'm, I'm not going to single out Bernie, uh, all of them combined, including the squad. <laughs> including, you know, the rest of the, you know, the kings who, who rule the Senate today. Do you think that most politicians in, in the House and the Senate know about MMT? Um, I don't know about most, but uh, a large, a significant number knows about it to the point where uh, a couple of years ago, I believe there was a, a, a resolution in the Senate uh, to condemn MMT as dangerous for the country. <laughs> uh, and it was yeah. sponsored by five senators. So they certainly know about it. Um, of course, MMT has been all over the media in the last uh, few years. Stephanie Kelton was Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, uh, she was the chief economist of the Senate Budget Committee. She was Bernie Sanders' economic advisor during the first campaign and the second campaign. Her book, The Deficit Myth, 
has been a bestseller mm -hmm. New York Times list for the last uh, year or so. So MMT is not an obscure concept and idea. There's a lot of misinterpretation. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, specific attacks against MMT to discredit it because it's dangerous for people who want to keep the system as is. And a lot of misinformation trying to fuel that narrative of the 1970s inflation saying, oh, MMT will do the same. We've, we've done this before. You hear Larry Summers say it all the time. You hear all the people who are talking about inflation and we can't afford it. The first thing they cite is we know about MMT. This is look at what happened in the 70s. Look at what happened in Venezuela. Look at it that happened through Weimar Republic. All of those cases of inflation, hyperinflation around the world that they cite are specifically clear from an MMT perspective. They have to do with a breakdown of the productive capacity in Venezuela, a breakdown of the productive capacity in the Weimar Republic in Germany that fueled the hyperinflation because of, because of war reparations. The Allies took 40% of the industrial capacity from, from Germany. And of course, it led to shortages of productive capacity and inflation. So all of those has been, we've dealt with this in the literature. They just you know, love the idea of uh, spreading myths about what causes inflation because it's convenient. And then they stick MMT uh, in the next sentence, they all we know about MMT. Um, but for people who took the time and effort to read Stephanie Kelton's book, to read some of the MMT literature, I'm not talking about the academic kind of theoretical literature. I'm talking about uh, tons of podcasts and articles and interviews mm -hmm. and lengthy discussions like this one. And typically it takes about an hour, which is what we've done here today, about an hour to kind of wrap your head around the idea that there is a way out of this quagmire. Maybe you're not completely convinced, but there are all the follow-up questions will pop up. So what do you do when you have follow-up questions? You go and ask, you go read, you engage with the literature, but what does the mainstream do? Not even spend a minute on the concept because they know as soon as they get into the details, their concepts will start to fall apart. And if you play the role of the gatekeeper for the establishment, for the oligarchs, then you don't even want to go there, right? And, and that's what we're dealing with right now. So the only way out for us, and, and this is really what gives me hope, is that a better world is within reach. We're not talking about impossibilities here. A better world is within reach in terms of democratizing the system, cleansing the system of corruption and abuse, and delivering the prosperity that we know we can afford, we know we deserve, and doing that without sacrificing democracy, without sacrificing freedom, and without inflation. And if you, if you can accept that this is a possibility, then join us in the effort in, in learning, in uh, educating others, because that's what it's going to take. Educate, empower, mobilize, organize, and call their bluff. Agreed. Um, I have two more questions for you here. Uh, the first one is, thanks so much, uh, Red Precarian, for the super chat. Question for Mr. or excuse me, for Professor Kaboob. Since the U.S. government promised former slaves in 1865 40 acres and a mule, isn't the U.S. government responsible for making good on this promise plus interest? That's a good question. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's lots of studies in the literature we're talking about minimum of $17 trillion, I believe, the, the last estimate that I saw. Absolutely. That's the short answer. 
the details are in the literature. There's lots of uh, colleagues who have done fantastic work in this space, um, and, and I highly recommend uh, a book co-authored by uh, my colleague, uh, Professor uh, Sandy Darity from Duke University, co-authored with Kristen, uh, and I'm blanking on the author's uh, last name, but the book is called From Here to e Equality, uh, and it's mm -hmm. fantastic read uh, on, on this. Um, and this question, I, I believe you pretty much answered this. So we need to set the narrative straight. How could we do that? And that's by educating people. Yeah. Um, we have to continue to spread the message. Yeah. I mean, none of this stuff is, is easy. I mean, that's why we call it a struggle. <laughs> the struggle means there isn't like a simple silver bullet answer that says, oh, we know the solution. This, this involves mobilizing people. And not brainwashing people, mobilizing people with, with real information that they can digest and, and that allows them to actually be empowered and, and participate with, with full confidence that they're fighting for what they believe is, is right. Uh, and I, I always say, I mean, it's nice to have pitchforks and, and, and go after the oligarchs, but, but then what, right? We want well-informed pitch, pitchforks that can destroy the dominant narrative and can actually introduce a coherent alternative that is just, that is equitable, that is sustainable. And, and that takes a lot of effort. That's why it's, we call it a struggle. Absolutely. Um, Fadil, thanks so much for coming on. Before you go, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on social media. If uh, people follow you, probably put it in the show notes. You see my uh, Twitter handle there uh, on the screen. Uh, I'm on social media. I'm accessible. Uh, and, and, and most importantly, it's not just me. There's a whole uh, community of, of academics and scholars and activists and organizers. There's plenty of resources on social media, on YouTube. Uh, definitely check out Stephanie Kelton's work. Uh, you know, follow Real Progressives. You know, listen to a whole plethora of MMT podcasts, including the MMT podcast, the Macro and Cheese and, and so many other podcasts that are probably forgetting the money on the left, you know, look up uh, Modern Money Network. So many organizations uh, of regular people who are not academics or who are just organizers and activists who were exposed to the idea that a better world is within reach, that there is an alternative, not like what Margaret Thatcher told us, there is no alternative, and are, are learning and fighting to educate and empower their peers uh, and their friends and neighbors to uh, to organize for what is right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Red Precarian, for the super chat. Hashtag each one teach one and maybe read Warren Mosler's seven deadly innocent frauds, free online PDF, etc. Plus connect with real progressives. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Again, Fidel, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. All right, guys, you know how we do this. Have a good night. Keep up the fight. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.